Good morning. My name is Emily, and I'll be reading our scripture passage today from Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Emily. Well, as we begin our time in God's word this morning, just a few things I want to mention. Last week, with all the commotion and the fun of the baptism and the picnic, um, I failed to mention, uh, but want to mention it this morning, that Ben Bechtel has been here five years. Last week was his five-year anniversary at our church, and so we're going to honor him as a staff and elders at a different venue. But I just wanted to acknowledge that as a church, that our church is a better and different place uh, over these last five years because you've been here, Ben. So I thank you. Okay, Brenda's clapping. <laughs> um, yeah. So I appreciate it. It's not a small thing to love a, a local church for, for five years in a full-time capacity. So thank you. Um, just two more encouragements here to something to think about, and then I'll pray and we'll get into the sermon. It's a word to those who have been here for a while and, and those who are kind of new. So first to those who have been here for a while. Um, historically, there was many opportunities that, that m- many of you were looking at go- church and saying, I'm going to come to one service to worship and, and one to serve at. And in kind of the, the lockdown era and then even into the kind of post-lockdown, church hasn't looked like that. The needs haven't been there in the same way. But October 18th, when we come back in, we're going to move towards three services. And so that desire, that need, that opportunity, if you will, is going to be there again, especially in children's ministry, which we're going to open up with full children's ministries in the second hour. But the third hour, we're not there yet. And we don't have to be on day one, but the desire would be to keep expanding it so that uh, there'd be opportunities for families to come that have kids. So just be thinking about that, whether it's we're not going to open up the cafe again for a while. We don't know when that'll happen, but there'll be opportunities to serve. And so if that was something you enjoyed, we'd love to have you back doing that again. And then to those of you who are newish, uh, we are so thankful that you're here. Um, some of you have started even coming, um, either while we were online through March through May or, or this summer. Um, just one big deal to us as a church is leaving church as well. And I say that sort of because maybe one day we're all going to leave this church, right? Um, and so maybe I'm preemptively pastoring towards that. But I really do think in a bigger way it honors the Lord when we leave church as well. So if you were somewhere and you're visiting with us, that's, that's great. We're, again, we're so happy you're here. But it might mean having a conversation with your church leadership saying, I'm wrestling with these things. Can you help me? sort this out, and and they may have some wisdom for you about that. And then if the decision's already been made, and you're like, nah, we're we're here, I still might encourage you to to talk with your previous church leadership about how that transition came about, and to leave well. Harrisburg's a small place, and God's kingdom's um, a a place where we should all be rooting for each other. So it may mean something like saying, you know, we've been at this church years, and 
We're going to keep giving our tithe for the, till, you know, the new year, but we just love you, and how else could we leave well? That, that might be a conversation you would have. So I just I mention that because that's a huge deal to me as a pastor, seeing people leave our church or any church well. Um, if you would, bow your heads with me, and we'll pray and invite the Lord to meet us as we look at his word. Heavenly Father, the words of this passage from Matthew 11 have encouraged Christians for 2,000 years to know what is your heart for your people, to give them rest and a hope. I pray that the encouragement that Christians have drawn from throughout the ages, we would experience afresh this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we begin a new sermon series that will carry us until the Christmas season. We're calling the sermon series, All Who Are Weary, The Idols That Exhaust Us, and The Savior Who Won't. It's common for movies to draw their title from a key line or phrase or a key scene in that movie. For this, if this sermon series were a movie, Matthew 11 would be the scene uh, that becomes the words for our title. But I'm not going to start in Matthew 11. We're actually not going to get there for a few more minutes. So we're going to hang on to Matthew 11 and get there in a few moments. Perhaps You've heard studies before uh, that conclude that over the long haul of marriage, all the ups and downs, all the sufferings, all the joys, all the for betters, all the for worses, that it's common for two spouses to actually begin to look like each other. Maybe you've heard that before. After 20, 30, 40 years of marriages, couples who love each other often not only begin to act like each other and have similar mannerisms and preferences and about food and movies and hobbies, but they actually begin to look more and more like each other. I think there's a real sweetness to that. That on the first day of marriage, you stand at the altar, a beautiful bride and a handsome groom, and on your 10,000th day of marriage, you begin to actually display in your physical features what the reality of the Bible describes as two becoming one. I think that's super sweet. It's precious. I've also heard the same dynamic talked about with pets. Now, I may be cold-hearted. <laughs> that doesn't warm my heart in the exact same way. I, I don't know... Um, I mean, we call him man's best friend, but I don't know anybody who wants to look like their mutt. Uh, there's, there's no woman who goes, I just want to date a guy who looks like his St. Bernard. Right? No, no one's saying that. But before we get into Matthew 11, we need to lay some groundwork about the words in the subtitle of our sermon series. The words idols and exhaust. We need to talk about the biblical reality that what we behold we become. Another way to say that was, would be to say what we idolize, what we put before us and look at with our heart's affection, we begin to look more and more like and act more and more like. In the West, when we think of idols, we often think of idols as something in the East or something in the past. So we think of the idols of Buddhists or certainly of Hinduists 
who, or Hindus, excuse me, and their seemingly kind of innumerable gods and goddesses. We think of gold statues, some of them fat and cute, others bloody and horrifying. Perhaps you think of the idols of the Old Testament, the idols of the nations, those of the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the gods of Chemosh and Molech and Ashtaroth and Baal. Perhaps you think of the story in 1 Samuel about Dagon. It's a story where the Israelite army is defeated and, and the, capture the, the Philistines capture the Ark of the Lord and they put it in the house of their god Dagon and then they go to sleep and they wake up in the morning and Dagon's on the ground. They set him up again and the next morning the same thing. It's good that these images come to mind when we think of idolatry for these were the idols that were popular among the nations and in the Old Testament, and sadly, too often among Israel. But if that's all that you think about when you think about idolatry, you're probably able to keep the concept of idolatry at arm's length, something that's a problem for someone else, but not you, not us. The Bible, however, has a deeper and broader definition of idolatry. When rightly understood, idols are a problem for all of us. I want to consider a few verses here. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see it in scripture. Our adult Sunday school is going to begin studying the book of Habakkuk. And the book of Habakkuk tells this uh, prophecy about a foreign nation that's going to come into Israel and take Israel away because of their disobedience. And chapter 1 verse 11 describes this other nation that's going to come in as this army as men who quote, Whose own, excuse me, whose own might is their God, Habakkuk 1.11. Whose own might is their God. That's interesting, isn't it? There's, there's no sculptures, there's no statues. It says their might is their God. In other words, what they trusted in, what they relied upon, what they gave their ultimate allegiance to, allegiance to what they protected and guarded, what they served and worshipped most was their own strength. Their strength was their God. It's very similar to a line that shows up in one of the Apostle Paul's letters. He refers to the church in Philippians, um, chapter 3, verse 19. Um, he refers to others, th- those who have been overrun with worldly passions. He says that their God is their belly. Very imagistic. Now, he's not saying they treated their belly like a statue that they bowed down to and worshipped. What he's saying is what they lived for, what they loved most, and what they gave themselves over to most was their own appetite. They treated their appetite as a god because in a very real way it was. We'll put these verses on the screen. It comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 3, 4, and 5. The apostle Paul, actually Let's turn to it here. The Apostle Paul writes to this church in Colossae, For you have died, speaking of the Christian in Christ, you, it's as though you had died, and your life is hidden with, God, with Christ in God. It's a beautiful phrase about what happens to us in the gospel, that God the Father sees our life hidden with Christ. Verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, appears again in his second coming. Then you also will appear with him in glory, a present hope and a future hope. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
Okay, what does the Christian life look like? It looks like putting to death what is earthly in us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. That's what it says. Which is idolatry. Paul says that if you're a Christian, if God has loved you and saved you and changed you, and if you have a hope of a future with him forever in glory when he comes again, then you should now begin to put to death whatever is earthly in you. And then Paul gives several examples like sexual immorality and covetousness. And then at the end he says, which is idolatry? That's strange though, isn't it? Like, why would he call, how is covetousness idolatry? I thought being envious of someone was just being envious. Why the second label? Well, envy is envy, but it's also more. God is saying that embedded deeper than the desire to have what other people have is a dissatisfaction with God that leads you to create another God. Covetousness is a way to look out at the world and say, if I only had this or I only had that, then I would be happy. And this, Paul says, is idolatry. The finding our deepest joys and deepest longings in someone or something other than God. Now, it can be a bad, it can, we can do this with bad things like sexual sin. Or we can do it with good things, when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing in our lives. That's how one pastor has described it. Family's good, work is good, exercise is good, our belly is good, our might is good. But when they become ultimate things that we worship and serve, when they become taskmasters that have no boundaries in our lives and tell us what to do, then we've engaged in idolatry. You think about how this played out in the Garden of Eden. The serpent says to Eve that when you eat of the forbidden fruit, when she takes and eats of it, he whispers to her, you shall not surely die. And then he adds, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, he says. In other words, God's holding out at you. There's another reality out there that you don't have. But if you covet that reality, and if you seek it with all your heart, then you can be like God. You will be God. I think that phrase is helpful to think about. You will be like God. We'll come back to where I started. When we behold something, we become like it. And that's not always a good thing. In fact, when it comes to idolatry, it's an ugly thing. Think of that line from the Apostle Paul about when our belly becomes our God. What does it look like when a person gives themselves over unrestrained to their appetites for 30, 40 years? What does it look like to be given over to pornography for a lifetime? If you live for profit and advancement and business and money and become, and these things become ultimate in your life, and you possess this ruthless commitment to the bottom line, what does that look like when you retire at 63? Can you enjoy the toys you've accumulated? Does that person have the ability to do that? What happens when you give yourself over to beauty, trying never to show the signs of aging? What does that feel like as your body as it does inevitably begin to age. You don't just lose your health. You lose something deeper. 
And insecurity would well up inside of you, seeping in every, every interaction you're having with people. I want to read a portion of Psalm 115 that makes explicit the point I'm trying to make here. Again, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to see it in the pages of Scripture. This will be on the screen. This is from a hymn that the people of God would sing to remind themselves of truth. They ask rhetorically in this song, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so that they wouldn't become envious of the other nations and their idols and their prosperity, they would sing this song in these verses. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They, their idols, have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but they do not see, ears, but they do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. What's verse 8 say? Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Again, we become what we behold. And I suppose, I suppose the things that I'm saying to you could sound very academic, very theoretical. Like, okay, that's an interesting idea to ponder and to contemplate. But I don't think this is something merely academic or theoretical. Many of you will have seen the movie The Help. If you haven't seen it, you might at least know of it. But it's a movie that talks about race and privilege in Jackson, Mississippi in the early 60s. And the movie follows the story of several black maids and their white employers. And one particular woman is named Miss Hilly, and she is cruel. And she exhausts herself and others in her sin and evil. And there's this powerful scene where her maid tells Miss Hilly the truth. And the maid ends this short speech, but she ends her short speech with this look of disgust at what Miss Hilly has become, but also this look of sadness and pity. And she just shakes her head and says, Ain't you tired, Miss Hilly? Ain't you tired? Miss Hilly had given herself over to her sin and she began to look more and more like the pride and idolatry in her heart. And whether she knew it or not, she was exhausted. Our sermon series is called All Who Are Weary, The Idols That Exhaust Us and the Savior Who Won't. Before we come to Jesus for comfort, I want to ask the uncomfortable question, ain't you tired? You might be tired for several reasons, perhaps reasons that have nothing to do with sin, just life in a fallen world. We all have some of that, I'm sure. But many of you are tired additionally because of sin, both your sin and the sins committed against you. If that's true of you, you are in the right place. Look with me again at this passage that was read earlier, Matthew chapter 11. Let me read to you the words of Jesus, verses 28 through 30. 
Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In the verses that come before what I just read, Jesus asserts a closeness to his heavenly father that is unprecedented, unparalleled. He was no mere man. And he calls his heavenly father the Lord of heaven and earth. And then what follows after that statement is this strong affirmation of the sovereignty of the heavenly father and the son in salvation. Just to quote verse 27, it's not on the screen, but it's there right above what I just read. Jesus says, quote, no one can come to the father except the son. And then also anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And you might think that sort of sovereignty and salvation would lead to a logic that would make us passive. And yet the very next words out of Jesus' mouth are come to me. It's not as though because Jesus is going to reveal himself to whoever he wants to reveal himself. So, okay, we just fold our hands or sit on them and just say, well, we can't do anything about it. That's not true. Jesus says, come to me. If you want to come to the Father, just come. Just come. If something is stirring in your heart, just come to me. And notice that he says, come to me. When we come to our Savior, we don't primarily come to a doctrine or some abstract concept of truth. We come to a person. We come to a person who is grace and truth. We come to the person who is lowly, free, true, and strong. And you might think the one who is Lord over heaven and earth, the one who rules all things would say, come to me those who have their act together. Come to me you who have man hours to give. Come to me you who have achieved and overcome. But that is not who he invites. Jesus invites the wise and the intelligent. Not the wise and the intelligent, but infants. He invites the helpless, the dependent. He invites the weary and heavy laden. Think about that phrase. Weary denotes this I'm engaged in something difficult and I'm weary from it. It it, it denotes something almost self-inflicted. Whereas heavy laden denotes those who have been put upon. Who like a donkey have had their backs loaded down with weights. They didn't create. They didn't choose. But here we are. And to both groups, Jesus says, come to me. Because I am gentle and lowly in heart. Your sin, your shame, your weakness, your idolatry are the very things he wants you to bring. Be tempted to think that that one spiritual perfect day, that day you get up early, the day you read your Bible and pray and journal and 
No one fights at the breakfast table and you send your kids off to school with notes in their lunch boxes about how you love them. And you stand at the bus stop after your kids leave and you witness to your neighbor and you invite them to church. And on and on the day goes until you reach this zenith of spiritual perfection. You may think that is the one day when now I am most worthy. Now I am at the place where God most wants me to draw to him and you would be wrong. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus bids you come before you are better. Before you have fixed the problem. When your sin stinks like rotten garbage. Jesus describes his yoke as easy. And his burden as light. When we hear yoke, we think perhaps of an egg. (laughs) I don't know. Back in the day, farmers had this way of hitching oxen together. The rope and wood connecting system was called this, called a yoke. Which would allow the full force of two oxen to plow side by side. In parts of the world, farming still proceeds in this way. Uh, Imagine being yoked to a healthy ox. You would be worked to death in an afternoon. Jesus invites us to be yoked to him, to have rope and wood harnessed around our neck and his, which I think is a provocative metaphor for faith. It's not like we can take a rope and a yoke and like put it on Jesus. There's no Jesus here, here in a sense to like put, like connect that. What he's talking about is faith. And Jesus calls that arrangement of yoke and harness and faith easy and light. Wood that won't blister and rope that won't burn. Jesus is talking primarily to people who they knew God. He's talking about to the masses, the masses of believers in Israel as he's preaching out to them. He's talking to people primarily who would have been, their opportunity to know God was through their religious leaders. I want to go to a passage later in Matthew, Matthew 23. Just a few verses where Jesus, in a long passage where Jesus is describing um, with strong words of critique, the religious system of the day. Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, he would be talking to you and I if we were there. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. It seems that when Jesus invited all to come to him, he was doing so with a backdrop of a harsh yoke of religious system and oppression. And and that background context to Jesus' words in Matthew 11 has caused us as pastors here at this church to reflect on what are the yokes that we're strapped to? Where do we hear the serpent whisper to us, you shall not surely die. You will be like God. Just give yourself to this. What what are the thises? We printed a flyer for the next nine weeks of sermons. It's somewhere there in the pew, I hope. 
Uh, we would love for you to be reading those sermon passages um, prior to coming to church. If you've got roommates, maybe you can gather at the breakfast table or the dinner table Saturday night before. Read it together. Talk about it. Maybe you want to text a picture of that. Send it to a friend. Invite them to church. We'd love all of that. We just want to put it before you and show you where we're headed. So you can be praying for yourself and for our church. This would be a, a season where chains are broken. Sometimes as a parent, as we move towards a close, sometimes as a parent, when you see a child you love get so worked up and frustrated, and sometimes I'm, I'm thinking not just of young children, I'm thinking of grown children, you still love and you care about, and you can see them get so worked up and frustrated and angry and flailing about. And what he or she might need in that moment is not a harsh word, but this giant, strong bear hug that doesn't let them go until the tears are swallowed up in love. Over the next few weeks, we want to look out at you and say, week two, Come to Jesus, all who work all day, all night. Come to him, you who think you can't take a Sabbath. Find your rest in Jesus. Week three, come, you who have constant fear of what others think about you and are exhausted trying to keep people happy. Week four, come, you who do not own houses and cars and jewelry and fishing boats, but instead those houses and cars and jewelry own you. Week five, come, you who seek to have the good life that owns the houses and cars and so on, but you're exhausted because you just feel like this happiness carrot is always dangling just outside the reach of your outstretched arm and you can just touch it and tap it, but you just never squeeze it. Week six, come, you who have had your political leaders and political causes Leave you cynical and disillusioned. Come hear Jesus speak with Pilate in John 18 and 19 and tell Pilate that his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is not of this world and receive that as good news. Week seven, come you who feel the need to manicure your image. Keep this perfect facade, whether in public or in social media, that just communicates you have it all together. Week eight, come you who are sexually broken, bring your baggage, bring your bruises. Jesus longs to meet you where it hurts most. Week nine, come, you who are so focused on your own world that you can't even see the others around you, except in so much as you see them as a means to your own end. Come, lay down your desire to be God and let God rule over you. For your good. And finally, week 10, we'll hear Jesus say, Come, all you who don't fit in, whose society shuns, push to the margins. Hear Jesus say, I'm going to the highways and the byways, the forgotten places, and I'm bringing you. I'm inviting you to come sit at the feast of the kingdom. But you don't have to wait till next week to draw closer to God. If you are tired 
and God is stirring something in your heart, you can come to him today. You should come to him today. And let us know too, we would love to listen. We would love to pray. And we would love to be a part of seeing chains broken. I'm going to pray and invite the worship team to come back up. And we're going to participate in communion together for the first time in six months. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, I think we all know something of what it means to be weary and heavy laden. To exhaust ourselves and have others exhaust us. Lord, would you come and meet with us? Do more than we could ask or imagine. We thought we were just showing up to church and business as usual and come and go and leave. And you want to do so much more. And we pray that you would. In Christ's name.